Well, uh, aren't, you, aren't you thankful for the word today? Where would you be without God's word to you today? We're thankful all the time. In a special way this past week, I'm very thankful for the word. Part of that is just coming off Reformation Day and recalling that the formal principle of the Reformation The use of the term formal principle means the source of the Reformation was that recovery of God's word. It had been out of reach of the people, and it was a recovery of going back to the sources. And as going back to the sources, men and women, boys and girls, became to understand that clarity of the gospel, justification by faith alone and Christ alone. It sparked this revival, this liberating, freedom-granting gospel we're thankful for the word. The other reason is just as Thanksgiving approaches, and we think of all the things we're thankful for. And if you live outside of the U.S. at any point, you recognize that this is a uniquely, you know, it's a unique holiday, something unique about our culture and our founding, that those who initiated our land, planned our land, put the foundations for our land, wanted to have a day where they not only thanked each other, but thanked God for his blessings. Recognize how unique that is. So I'm thankful for a host of people and things and events. At the top of the list, I'm thankful for the word. As we go to Thanksgiving, might we be thankful for the word of God? When I was a high school, in high school, I had this, this image that really made an impression upon me. It's the NIV version of Psalm 12:6. It says, and the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver, refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. We want an image, not just once, seven times. The word is that pure and that perfect and that precious. There's, there's no dross, no blemish, nothing to detract from its value. A couple of years ago, a Wycliffe missionary died in an accident and Alan and I are know their parents, and we think a whole lot of them. He's about our age, and he always struggled with depression. Life was hard for him, but he'd be stuck with it. And when he died, his parents shared his favorite verse. What do you think his favorite verse of a Wycliffe missionary who just struggles through the course of his life? It was John 6, 68 and 69. It's when Jesus was saying some very difficult things to the crowds and many just decided to quit. You know, it's just too hard, your sayings. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, well, do you want to go away as well? And Peter, he got it so right here. He goes, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This isn't easy but you have the words of life. You you don't find them anywhere else. So that we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So I think of this missionary guy struggling with depression, not only loving the word, but devoting his life to translate the word in cultures that don't have the word in their culture and saying, you know, life's hard and I'm confused and tired but I know that you have the words of eternal life and I want others to know those words. Aren't you thankful for the word of God today? 
number of the number of us are reading Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, and he he has this wonderful chapter where he compares two verses. One is Isaiah twenty eight twenty one, the other is Jeremiah thirty two forty one. So Isaiah twenty eight twenty one talks about God's strange deed, even his alien work. Does God have a strange work and an alien work? The idea is it's an unusual, unexpected, even atypical. And so what is that? It's his work of of judgment and punishment. Even though Israel deserved it, they had sinned, years of sinning, and yet Isaiah could announce God's punishment and at the same time say it's alien, strange. The idea is he doesn't enjoy it. He didn't delight in it. It was for their good, it was for his glory, it's his will, yet it wasn't what he was on the edge of his seat wanting to do for his people. And in contrast to that, we have Jeremiah 32, 41. It's one of my favorite verses. I say a part of this passage every time we baptize somebody, a child or, or anybody, where Jeremiah says, I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and soul. And just striking that he never says, I'm gonna punish you with all my heart and all my soul. He rejoices in doing us good. He delights to show us grace. These are what he does with all his heart and soul. This is God's natural work, if we could say, versus his strange work. That's an amazing truth, and yet Ortland warns us of something. It's important. Ortland says, left to our own natural intuitions about God, We will conclude that mercy is his strange work and judgment his natural work. Now think of the way you instinctively view God when life is tough. So Sinclair Ferguson says, fallen man suffers from the poison of Eden. We've got it. Such that we are always tempted to think and feel that God is not out for our good, that God is more of a slave master than a gracious father. He's more restrictive than generous. See, fallen men, fallen women, boys and girls in a fallen world always wrestle with the influence and effects of sin, and life's hard. And it tempts us to think that God's natural work is punishment. I was thinking of this while I was watching the new Marvel Moody movie, um, Eternals. Um, it's interesting. Visual, appealing, all that. A lot going on in it, but it's, once again, it's, it's, a, it's a story. It's an ontological story. It's a story of being, a theory of origins, of our place in the universe. It's a story that's supposed to shape us or at least shape this world. And so there's this ultimate deity and he's pictured as this powerful, unfeeling, mechanistic being who periodically eliminates one group of people in one world in order to create energy for future groups of people in future worlds. He has to do the one to do the other. So mankind is caught up in this great cosmic process of of world creation. Individuals don't matter. It's this overall survival and continuity of what exists. I mean, it's just a terrible story. It's terrible. Yet left to ourselves, that's the kind of story we come up with. That's what fallen man comes up with. I mean, it just builds on theories we hold as doctrine in our culture, that of evolution and maybe even parallel universes. 
survival of the fittest. I mean, even the abortion logic fits in here. You protect one group of people from stereotypes and from limiting their economic or social standing, a lady with an unwanted pregnancy, and it all sounds good. They should be defended and protected, recognize the shortcomings in our culture in that regard. The only problem is that there's another life that's even more we even weaker and in need of defense. And in protecting one group that's been abused potentially, you urge them and legitimate them being abusers of a weaker group. So again, aren't you thankful for the word today? You see, the word reveals to us what God is really like. It tells us who we are. It shows God's great plan to redeem all things in the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would never know that without the word. And let me just footnote Kurt's Sunday school class right there. Beautiful. We are interpreters. We're going to interpret. We can look around in our world and come up with a different story depending upon the difficulty and pain that we focus on. God comes to us with the true story. So we're beginning a new series today and it's on the Gospel of Luke. And I love the Gospel of Luke. And so I'm just going over the prologue today and I'm gonna draw out a few points. Uh, Then in Advent, we're gonna read the birth narratives as we tend to do. We're gonna study those again and then we're gonna move on from there. But at first sight, the preface to Luke's Gospel is one of those passages that you skip over. Kind of like Chronicles portions of that. Not that you do that, but you're tempted to. But I want you to see today that it's actually incredibly rich. It conveys some wonderful things about God's word for us. So let's read Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And the grass withers, flowers fade, and this good word endures forever. So three questions, first being who wrote the gospel? Second, how did he write it? And then why did he write it? So who wrote the gospel of Luke? Well, Luke wrote, the Gospel of Luke, and Luke was Paul's traveling companion. You recall, there's ample testimony in the Gospel of Luke, and in its sequel, you remember, Luke Acts is a two-volume work. They go together. The preface speaks to Theophilus, and Luke in Acts says, I told you what Jesus began to do and to teach in his Gospel. Now, the implication is, I'm showing you what he continues to do and to teach through his Spirit-filled church. It's the second volume. So there's ample information there that would corroborate Luke as the author. Furthermore, there's uniform testimony of post-biblical writers in the early stages that all attest to Luke being the author. And so Paul and Luke were really close. And Luke stuck with Paul during his most difficult 
times, especially his two Roman imprisonments. And during his first imprisonment um, from either Caesarea or Rome, Paul writes in Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. It's a sweet passage. Paul dealt with a lot of medical problems and uh, Luke was his doctor friend, the first of the medical missionaries. In Philemon 24, also during his first imprisonment, Paul names Luke among his fellow workers. It's not just that he's the medical doctor for Paul, he's a, he's a gospel missionary speaking Christ. In 2 Timothy 4.11, during Paul's second imprisonment, which would end in his death at Nero's hands, Paul asks Timothy to come see him. You know, Timothy's his son spiritually. And he writes to Timothy and he says these sweet words, Luke alone is with me. It's a great, great text. And you see this physician heart, this uh, sympathy and kindness to stay with Paul even in his worst moments. Like Luke's gonna be there with Paul. And so you can't read Luke's gospel without seeing this deep caring and compassion. And you know that, those passages that are unique to Luke, like the Good Samaritan or the prodigal son the widow of Nain's son. Those passages are so full of mercy and, and compassion and, and moving encounters. And in addition, sometimes you see Luke, the physician, and you see details in his gospel. They don't necessarily prove that he wrote the gospel in Acts, but they definitely corroborate it where he has medical terminology, or at least how educated people would view that. And so in Luke 4.38, he describes Peter's mother-in-law as having a great fever, versus Mark simply says she had a fever. And it was the way medical writers of the time wrote. They would distinguish between fevers that were small or great. And Luke, with that medical attention to detail, said, no, it was, it was serious. She had a great fever. Furthermore, Luke's the one that pictures Jesus in Gethsemane and says he, 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 he sweated tears or, or he sweated drops of blood. And this condition that he may not have really understood, but when he heard of that from eyewitnesses, it, it really caught his attention. It, it conveys this medical attention to detail when people go through difficult times. Luke was most likely a Gentile, not a Jew. And he may have been a God-fearer, he was possibly a proselyte to Judaism, but he was an ethnic Jew, and if, an ethnic Gentile, excuse me, and if he were an ethnic Gentile, it's quite possible that he was the only Gentile writer of the Bible. The only one I can think of that may also be a Gentile is Job. So you have a Gentile writing scripture and furthermore, given how much attention he pays to Antioch in the book of Acts, it gets a lot of press. It seems that Luke was probably from Antioch, and he may have gotten converted. You remember the church spread first to Antioch because there was this intense persecution in Jerusalem. They had to flee, and they fled these 
unknown missionaries of Christ fled to Antioch and the church just boomed there. Luke may have been a part of that. Or he may have been converted under Paul's ministry. You remember at different points in Acts, Luke alternates between third person singular and first person plural. And it's really striking in the way he writes. It shows that he's involved in things. Well, the first time you see that is when Paul and his company are made to Troas and they're trying to figure out where to go and they had the vision of the Macedonian man that says, come over to Macedonia and they end up going to Philippi. Well, it's, it's, it's after Paul says, uh, after Luke writes, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Like Luke jumps on board. And then he reverts again to the third person singular when Paul leaves Philippi. It seems that he stays behind. And Paul goes on. And then Paul comes back through and picks him up to go to Jerusalem. And Luke speaks in first person plural again. It's we went to Jerusalem. So it seems that Luke adopted Philippi as his adopted city. And furthermore, that he he wanted to stay because... Well, the core group of the church plant in Philippi was a motley bunch. And you realize it was Lydia, that rich dealer in purple, then there was that rescued demon-possessed little girl, and then there was that rough Roman jailer who put Paul in the scaffold or whatever, the chains inside. That's your core group of a church plant. And Luke sticks with them in his love for Christ, passion for the gospel, and attention to those in need And he stays in Philippi, and that church becomes Paul's favorite church. You recall in the letter to Philippi, that church noted for joy. Luke was a man passionate about the gospel, and it spread throughout the world. Well, how did he write? How did he write his gospel? And that's what we just read. And did you just notice all the words for how carefully and diligently he studied and wrote? I mean, Luke's description of how he researched and wrote his gospel in Acts is about the strongest statement in the Bible for the desire, the effort, the need to ascertain the historical reliability of the events that gave rise to Christianity. I mean, I love that passage for that. I mean, he presses it on you today. Luke takes pains to tell he did his research. Like, he used solid sources and assessed them well. Like, he wasn't flying by the seat of his pants. He didn't wing it. It wasn't just hearsay. Like, he did his work. He rolled his sleeves up and made sure that what he was saying is what happened. He's not telling spiritual fables or myths, Because more than any other religion on the face of our world, Christianity is one that's grounded and must be grounded in historical fact. I mean, that's because it hinges on the virgin birth of of Christ, virgin conception of Christ, and the bodily resurrection from the tomb. We don't have that. We don't have anything. It's not a philosophy of a better life. It's God became man to save sinners, So I love thinking of Luke as 
As a good doctor, and we love our medical personnel and how they had this hunger to get down to the roots and the origins of a problem that somebody has. We're gonna test you and examine you and think it through. And Luke applies that to the events of Christianity. And so we see first in this little section that he recognizes other works. Other people had put their hands to the plow. Literally, they had undertaken or, or set their hand to compile the story of the events that were accomplished among us, these amazing events. And we want to write them down for you. And these most likely include Mark's gospel. It most likely includes material that became Matthew's gospel and some other things. But it wasn't just limited to written sources. He wasn't just in a, a library room bringing source books together. It also included oral reports. He talked to people and he calls these people eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And they, they had information they delivered and passed on. And that's a technical phrase for the official apostolic testimony, that inspired account of what happened. He looks for eyewitnesses. And this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. There's other passages that speak of eyewitnesses in different words, but it's a solid statement here. I, I went after eyewitnesses. The idea is that these eyewitnesses saw Jesus and then they preached the Jesus they saw. It wasn't somebody they just heard about in the rumor mill. They saw him and they preached him. That's why the eyewitnesses became ministers of the word. They couldn't help it. And so you, you, you see uh, Luke um, these eyewitnesses are still living. And so he's traveling around with Paul and he's just multitasking. He's taking care of Paul, he's preaching the gospel and he's researching to write the gospel and Acts. So he takes every opportunity as he goes around through the known world, especially in Rome and in Jerusalem, maybe during Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea, which was close to Jerusalem. And he goes and interviews eyewitnesses that are still living and he wants to go back to the very beginning and then those that saw Jesus resurrected. He spoke with apostles and, and disciples and Jesus' brothers. He may have even gotten to speak with Mary, Jesus' mother. You imagine them having a cup of tea and talking about an angel telling her she's about to be the mother of God. That would bring Luke 1 and 2 into really a beautiful focus, wouldn't it? Maybe that's directly from Mary. He's an artist as well as a historian. That's all written in Semitic style versus how he begins the gospel. Well, he talks about prior works, but then he talks about that he joins himself to these people in verse 3. It seemed good to me also. Like, I, I felt moved to contribute too. So, he joins himself to those who compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And he gives his credentials for being an author. Like, why should we accept something from Luke? He's not an apostle. He follows an apostle, Paul. Paul lends some authority to him, but why should we pay attention to Luke? I mean, he's a Gentile, you know? He's not even, who would you expect? Well, he says, I followed all things closely, for some time past. 
And the idea is, Luke is saying, I investigated, I researched, I studied, I analyzed, like I got down to the roots of this thing. I spent a lot of time doing it. And I did that about all things related to Jesus. I did it very carefully, closely, meticulously, going back to the very earliest events, even his birth, even his conception. Luke's trying to tell us that his history writing standards are extraordinarily high. He wants the culture to view his history writing standards as high. Norman Giesler and Frank Turek write a book. It's a great little book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Kind of turns it on its head. And he says these words. Suppose someone wrote a book in 1980 describing your hometown as it was that year. In the book, the author correctly describes your town's politicians, its unique laws and penal codes, the local industry, local weather patterns, local slang, the town's roads and geography, its unusual topography, local houses of worship, area hotels, town statutes and sculptures, the depth of the water in the town harbor, and numerous other unique details about your town that year. Question, if the author claimed he had visited your town that year or said he had gotten good information from people who had been there, would you think he was telling the truth? Of course, because he provides details that only an eyewitness could provide. And that's the type of testimony we have throughout much of the New Testament. And among all of that, Luke includes the most eyewitness detail. In fact, in Acts, another author writes that in just 16 chapters of Acts, there are 84 facts that since then, very detailed, that since then have been confirmed by archaeology and historical studies, 84 details. The question is, is there any doubt that Luke was an eyewitness to these events or at least had access to reliable eyewitness testimony? What more could he have done to underscore his credentials as a serious, authentic, reliable historian? But the issue is that in the very same books in which he has all this detail that can be corroborated, that really happened, he also includes in Acts 35 miracles. In the gospel, the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection. They're included in the same narrative with all of that corroborated detail and without any embellishment or extravagance as a historian would record it. So the question then is, now why would Luke be so accurate with trivial details like wind directions, water depths, peculiar town names, but not be accurate when it comes to important events like miracles. In light of the fact that Luke had proven accurate with so many trivial details, it is nothing but a pure anti-supernatural bias to say he's not telling the truth about miracles he records. So it makes much more sense to believe Luke's miracle accounts than to discount them. In other words, Luke's credentials as a historian have been proven on so many points that it takes more faith not to believe his miracle accounts than to believe them. And that's what he's trying to impress upon us. This isn't myth or fable. It really happened. It boggles the mind. But as historical as the others are, so is the resurrection and all these other miracles. And so why did he write? The third question, why did he write? 
Well, to do that for us. We've said he's, he's a man passionate about the gospel and it spread. We said he's a Gentile. And we also should add, he writes for a Gentile audience. His focused attention is on them. See, the specific person he addresses, his two-volume work to, is Theophilus. And Theophilus is most likely a Gentile himself, since Luke refers to him as most excellent. A Jew wouldn't have that kind of title. It, it's, it's very high social standing. He, he could have a high-ranking position in government or just be a prominent member of upper-class society. And he most likely lives in Rome for a number of reasons. One, just Luke spent a lot of time in Rome, but in a more specific, special way, all of Acts drives towards Rome to where the culminating verse of Acts is Paul's in prison preaching the kingdom of God unhindered with power in the shadow of Caesar a new king is rattling the gates of Rome saying, you're not the authority, I am, and this is my world, and I just proved it by resurrecting from the dead. And Luke is writing to a prominent man there to present Christ to Roman society. And Luke writes to him in order, this orderly account in order that he may have certainty concerning the things he has been taught. That's his express statement. I want you to have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And see, Theophilus had been taught something of Christ. He may have accepted the gospel. It's possible. Or he may have heard something and gotten interested. He may be an inquirer or a seeker. And so Luke wants to give him this sure, certain information, organize it well, craft it for him in order to either ground him in the faith or to persuade him to believe in Christ. And then the culture among the educated of that day in such a pluralistic society with so many stories of life and philosophies of living, the educated were disillusioned and they were tired of all this, these fables and they wanted something real and true and authenticated and concrete and Luke does that for him. So what Luke writes is this well-researched, well-crafted gospel to communicate the bedrock gospel events and results. At the same time, he doesn't restrict it just to Theophilus. He has in view a wider audience through him. And so once again, Luke is a historian, but he's also an artist. And this prologue is a common literary convention of the day. That's how educated people wrote it's one long sentence in the Greek. It's just one sentence, and it's elegant, classical Greek, the kind of, you know, the Greek writers would use. He wants his work to be taken seriously. He wants to present a work as an important work in the field of literature on the world stage. He's making a reasoned, persuasive appeal to Greco-Roman society of Christ and the gospel. And furthermore, writing to Theophilus literally means, Theophilus does mean friend of God, loved of God. 
such that ancient commentators always viewed it metaphorically, like he writes to help us love God or show us God's love. But we today, and I think it's right, say it's a real person he writes. Nevertheless, given Luke's literary bent, we have to think he's got in mind men and women, boys and girls, and wanting us, as he writes, to become friends of God, lovers of God, and see God's love for us in this broken and fallen world. He's a historian, he's an artist, and he's a theologian. He communicates theology to us. He's telling us a story. And the story he's telling us in the midst of this chaotic, upside-down world is that salvation came. A savior came. It's a story of salvation. A God who saves sinners such that Mary, overwhelmed that she would be the mother of the Redeemer, says, my heart magnifies the Lord, my spirit exalts in God my Savior. The angels, when they announce Jesus' birth to the shepherds, say, unto you is born this day the Savior, Christ the Lord. Simeon holds baby Jesus and says, now I've seen God's salvation. The apostles arrested by the Pharisees can't help speak the gospel and they get brought in and says, look, you judge for yourself. We've got to obey God rather than man. You hung Jesus on the cross. God exalted him. We're speaking of him as a savior of sinners. It's a story of salvation such that the body of the letter is bracketed in by two purpose statements and one is this, Luke 5 It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, Luke the physician. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The last part of the body, last verse in the body of the letter, Luke 19.10 with Zacharias, Zacchaeus, I've come to seek and save the lost. It's a story of a God who seeks and saves the lost. That's your story. In fact, it's not new. Really, it's not the words that have been accomplished among us, but fulfilled among us in verse one. And that fulfillment terminology means God's always been like that. Jesus just showed God's heart walking around as a human. He's fulfilling God's plan to save sinners that started at Genesis 3.15, and that's what I'm telling you about. It happened. It happened. So aren't you thankful for the word? This is, this is your story. This is what's happening. It takes the world and its condition seriously. And it presents another story on the field of world history and says that this world is fundamentally about a broken, fallen, sinful world that God came to save. And it exalts the perfections of the word. In just these four verses, when we we think of the perfections of the word, we think of its authority. Like, 2 Timothy Three says God breathed out the word. It's God's word, and yet it's 100% God's word to us. And we wouldn't know it otherwise, except God also, it's 100% man's word. And we got this man, this unique man, this hardworking, reliable, painstaking, compassionate, diligent, merciful, gifted, artistic guy that God uses to craft a gospel which is 100% his word, and yet in a unique way, to meet people where they are in the audience that he was writing. It shows us the beauty of the inspiration of the word, that God is meeting fallen sinners where they are to illuminate Christ to them 
And it speaks to the authority of it that Luke, maybe above anyone, is saying, no, it really is true. You can base your life on it. And when we think of the, author- think of the perfections of the word, we think of the authority, but also we think of the, the necessity. Like you don't have salvation. You don't know this story unless I, unless I tell it to you. We have the sufficiency that, you know, everything we need for life and godliness is found in God's word and it's found in God's word and it's so nuanced and and beautiful that he crafts it for different groups of people even. And you also find the clarity, another aspect of the perfections of God's word. You can understand it. He wrote it to that society so they could understand it. Don't you love the word? Not only did Jesus come and redeem us, but he wants us to know it. This is the true story that we live in, but even more than that, God meets you right here through it, and you see in Christ, presented in Luke's gospel, the tender compassion of God for sinners, that he came to save you, and that's his heart for you, an internal relationship with you. Indeed, Psalm 12, six, the word of the Lord is flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Luke just kind of underscores that for me. Like I really made it clear for you. Would you embrace such a gospel and let it go deeper? May you be convinced of the certainty of the events that that Jesus has accomplished for you and for your salvation. Amen. Let's stand.